This message by Sam Shin, entitled "Buildings: A Significant Means, Never the End," was recorded at Wellspring Church on April 28, 2019. The text for this message is Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 1 to chapter 12, verse 47. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 12, verses 27 through 43. Hear now the word of the Lord. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites, also from Beth Gilgal, and from the region of Geba and Asmavet, for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and their Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs to that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and after them went Hoshea and half the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah. And certain of the priests' sons with trumpets, Zechariah the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zakur, son of Asaph, and his relatives: Shemaiah, Azarel, Milalai, Gilalai, Maai, Nethanel, Judah, and Hanani. And with the musical instruments of David, the man of God, and Ezra the scribe went before them. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David, at the ascent of the wall above the house of David, to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens, to the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of Yashana, and by the fish gate and the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, to the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard, and so both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me, and the priests Eliakim, Maaseiah, Miniamin, Micaiah, Elioni, Zechariah, and Hananiah with the trumpets, and Maaseiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzai, Jehohanan, Malkijah, Elam, and Ezer. And the singers sang with Jezariah as their leader, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. And the women and the children also rejoiced. The joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. So far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Thank you, Chad. Great job. <laughs> I actually received、um, an email from、uh, someone at someone in our church, and they had、uh, mentioned another friend's church, a mutual friend's church, that did something that I thought I would love to do as a church, especially when we get a new building, which is、um, that we would read together the Bible from Genesis to Revelation out loud, nonstop.、Uh, people sign up for different slots. And we do it until we finish it, and、uh, we'd be reading texts like this, you know, with difficult names. And one of the things that this person, the email that I had received of their experience as a church and doing it, is when they got to Revelation twenty-one and twenty-two, the church was filled, and there was such wonderment of God that filled that room. As they read and finished off reading out loud together God's word, so I thought I would love to do that. So that keep that in mind. If you you will hear about that more, hopefully a year or year and a half away. It's very much in line with what Nehemiah did and、uh, and Ezra does. We really believe in the power of God's word, even in the reading of these names. And these two chapters, we didn't read the whole chapter because I didn't want to put Chad through that much. Nor through you, at least not right now. But it's a bunch of names, a lot of names, and you're probably wondering, 
This is going to be a really boring sermon. <laughs> but I hope, actually, as I was preparing for this time, I was very excited for it today. Uh, looking through what God would have for us, and most particularly as we are, for many of us, are going to our new church building today to do a little bit of work. And hopefully a number of you will be able to join us as well. Even if you haven't signed up, we'd love to have you join us to give your muscle and your time and your energy. And there is something to building together. I remember um, when we first moved into our office in Pleasanton, uh, I was painting a wall next to somebody else. He ha happens to be, he was part of the Grace Alameda Church plant, and he's now one of the elders there. And I didn't know him at the time, Dave Choi, and um, we were painting the wall next to each other, and we shared testimonies with each other. And that was, for, even to this day, when I meet him, we talk about that time, that experience. So there is something to picking up a hammer or a sledgehammer, or whatever it might be, a, a screwdriver, and just, and although we have a mask, but, uh, you know, you do your best and you work hard and you have a conversation. So really hope you're able to join us. We could truly use the help, even though we have already about 45 of us gathering together. But we could use more if you can imagine that. So if you're able to, come and join us. We'd love to have you. There's uh, something in this text, but not just in this passage in chapters 11 through 12, but as we've been seeing throughout Nehemiah, a common theme. And it's the theme of building and buildings. And it's something that has happened throughout the ages and throughout church history. And it's something that actually has been in the news within the past couple of weeks. And it's one, the, the destruction of a glorious church building, the the Cathedral Notre Dame in Paris. And I know many of you know about that. Um, it was, if you've ever been there, it's an incredibly beautiful structure uh, that has stood the test of time almost a millennia. And yet, very quickly, as you perhaps saw in the news, the spire comes down. Although the artwork is saved and a number, at least the foundation of the building is fine, but there's going to be a lot of work to repair that structure. One thing that was interesting as the news came in about it is how many billionaires actually volunteered to give money to restore that building. It was quite amazing to think of the millions that were already pouring in to restore that structure. Because for most people, the Cathedral Notre Dame is not a church building, but it's a symbol. And it's a symbol not of about God, but about France and Paris. It really is two of the main structures next to the tower, uh, the Eiffel Tower as what symbolizes the heart of Paris. And so it makes sense that a lot of Frenchmen and French women would gather together and try to rebuild this historic structure. But concurrently, only about a few days later, another set of church buildings were also burnt down. And these were in Sri Lanka. And if you know what happened is that um, an Islamic terrorist attack happened in Sri Lanka and they had essentially firebombed a number of church buildings. And if you happen to look at some of those church buildings, they were pitiful structures. They weren't really grand structures, not like Notre Dame. Some of them were very small church buildings and yet they were attacked. One thing to note about that attack is that there weren't uh, much, uh, there wasn't much outpouring of desire to rebuild those church buildings. It wasn't as though a lot of the world said, hey, let's rebuild the churches in Sri Lanka. Very different than what happened in Notre Dame. So the question is, why does one set of buildings, why do people care more about Notre Dame than the churches in Sri Lanka, even though both are churches? And then the second question that I have is, which buildings do you think God cares about more? We know which buildings people care about, but which building do you think God cares about and why? When we look at Nehemiah, we see that the way that God views structures, physical spaces, buildings, he has very much in mind the idea that 
buildings, whether it's the building of a wall or the Temple of Jerusalem, which is, was a grand building, far grander than anything that this world has, even compared to Notre Dame. It was a, a spectacular piece of architecture that was burnt down in 586 BC by the Babylonians. But one thing we know about God is that he cares nothing for buildings in and of themselves. Buildings are always a means. They're never the end. And what does it take to make sure that a building does not become an end? So much that if it becomes the end, then God actually is not there and he doesn't care about it at all. This chapter and these two chapters show us what it takes for us, for the church, for Israel to guard against the idea that the church building or a temple is the end rather than a means. And it takes two sort of points or ideas. First is understanding the diversity that it takes to establish this building and the purpose of it. And then secondly, remembering the dedication that is uh, celebrated in response to the raising of this structure. So the diversity we see in chapter 11 all the way through chapter 12, verse 26. And the second, we see the dedication of this structure in verses 27 of chapter 12 to the end of the chapter, verse 47. We'll first look at the diversity. The wall is completed, but what does it take to complete the wall? It actually takes a diverse community to build this wall. And the diversity comes in two distinct ways. First, it's it's multi-generational. If we look at verse 4, the writer says, In Jerusalem live certain of the sons of Judah and the sons of Benjamin, of the sons of Judah, Athiah, the son of Uzziah, son of Zechariah, son of Amariah, son of Shephatiah, son of Mahalalel, of the sons of Perez. And I pulled that out, but most of chapter 11 is that. Son of this, son of this, son of this, son of this person, this person, this person. We look at these names, and they are to us just a bunch of very difficult Hebrew names to pronounce. It doesn't mean much to us, but to the Jewish person, it represents multi-generations. So when Nehemiah and Ezra are recording these names, what they're doing is recording families. They're recording grandfathers and grandmothers and grandchildren and fathers and mothers. And so you can imagine this was not the result of a group of uh, a small group of men who were skilled and qualified gathering together to build a wall. And we've discussed this early on in chapter, um, in numerous earlier chapters in chapter uh, four, five, and six of Nehemiah that the wall was not built by carpenters and millers and blacksmiths. They weren't around. Many of them had been exiled or killed in this process. And so the people who came back were just general, ordinary people with mostly unskilled labor. And it was men, women, and children. They all gathered around and it required the whole people of Israel to do this task because they just didn't have enough people to actually accomplish it from a, a skill set wise and as well as maybe people you would imagine would be doing this type of work. So it requires many generations, and that's not just in the process of building a wall, but that's in building any body of Christ, any church, any structure that honors God. It is a good thing to have multi-generations, and it is a good thing to have children of the smallest and youngest of ages, two seniors. I hope that as a church, as we grow, that it will diversify distinctively generationally and that we will actually interact with one another in this way because that's what it takes to build a church physically and it's also what what it takes to build a church spiritually. It isn't just about everyone being exactly the same. uh, I've shared this a number of times with you, but I was a pastor of a campus church for about five years. The church was comprised of only college students. And I was the pastor. And sure, we had a lot of people who were willing to work hard and do different things, but it was hard. It was hard because you had 
sort of this groupthink mentality. The problem, as you know, with college students is that a senior thinks they're so much more mature than a sophomore. Two years, a, a 22-year-old knows a lot more than a 20-year-old. And I think many of us now who are graying in our hairs and we sort of laugh at that idea, we think, well, no, two years doesn't make that much of a difference in terms of maturity and uh, the information that you know. But when you're only around peers and people who are exactly like you in one generation, we miss out on opportunities to learn from those who have walked before us. And so my hope and prayer is that in every way, the names that are recorded will be names in, regarding our church will have multiple generations recorded and memories of not just people who were in their 20s and 30s or teens, but as well in their 60s and 70s and 80s. There's a lot to be learned. Secondly, is that there's a, a group of people that are multi-interested and multi-gifted. We see this in verse 9. In verse 9 of chapter 11, there are leaders and administrators. You need people like that. But in verse 16, there are tradespeople and farmers. You need people like that. In verse 11, there are priests and Levites who are responsible for the care of the temple. That's just a, a little example. Really, chapter 11 has a, a wide, diverse range of people coming from all walks of life, of educational backgrounds, skill sets, and they come together to do this great task of rebuilding this wall, rebuilding the city, rebuilding the temple. It is a good thing to know that when God builds his church, he does not simply take one type of person with one interest and one career path and everyone looks exactly the same. That's not what God intends when he brings together people of all walks of life with different gifts and interests and talents. And there is something to be said about each one of us willing to learn and to grow from one another based not on what we find interesting, but on how God has unified all of us through the diversity of the ranges of gifts and talents and ideas and thoughts. One of the great treasures that I have of being in ministry is that I get a chance to hear many of your stories, hear about what you do at work, hear about life on a regular basis, when I ask, how is it going, and you tell me, and you say, oh, this is what I do at work, I don't do that just simply to say, well, that's my job, I have to ask you that question. But I'm actually interested. I am interested in learning about all of those things. I learn a lot about myself as I learn about what you do, regardless of what you do for as a profession or what your daily work schedule is like. It's not something that I think, though, that is only left for pastors. But we should all have that heart of wanting to say, I am interested in you, in what you are passionate about, and what you are skilled at, and what you are gifted at, not just because it makes good conversation, but it actually gives me insight for myself into that world, into that idea. And the more we broaden our perspective of this world, the more I understand how God utilizes everyone. This is what we see in 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul says that we're all one body in Christ. Even the pinky is a part of the body. And so God has an intent. And the intent is not to build a building, but Ephesians 4 says to build up a mature people in Christ. And the way that we do that is to understand the diversity of the uniqueness of the body of Christ. So chapter 11 gives us a very broad range of a diverse group of people, but the focus, despite the task at hand, is not the wall, but the people. You know, thankfully, it's not, chapter 11 is not, and we really don't see any blueprint of the wall in this. A lot of names, a lot of families, a lot of what they do and who they are, but no blueprint as to, here's exactly how to build this wall. <coughs> And so with this, we see that 
the building itself is not the focus, but the people are. And we must not get away from that critical tension. The tension of spending all of our efforts and energy and resources in building a building without ever making sure that we always remember what is most important. It's not the building, but it's God himself. And it's the people who are a part of the body of Christ. We are, and the building, the building specifically, is a means, never the end. We must not mistake that, or we will lose focus. And then the greatest danger, the gravest danger, is that God will say, I care nothing about that whatsoever. So the big question is, how do we keep that focus through this process? Because we need it. How do we keep this focus? And to me, Nehemiah chapter 12 teaches us how to keep this focus. It sort of gives the inspired framework of making sure that as we are engaged in the, the practical realities of finishing this task of building this building, that we are making sure along the way that we're mindful of having the right perspective, right heart, right attitude towards this process. And the way that we see it in, in Nehemiah chapter 12 is that he dedicates this building of this wall. And this happens in a number of different ways, number of responses that shows us how this dedication and what it looks like. We see it in verses uh, 40, uh, 27 and 43 of chapter 12. First, through rejoicing, joy. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness. And then verse 43. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. One thing the Bible does dif- distinctively is that it, when it repeats a word, it does so very intentionally. And you can see just in those verses the word joy constantly being repeated. It's because joy was what they experienced when they remembered specifically where they had come from. That's the whole story of Nehemiah. Nehemiah constantly reminds the Israelites, remember where you were, where your forefathers were, what, what led them to even be in this place where they are exiled, that they had disobeyed God, they had turned away from him, they had worshipped other gods, they had trusted in someone other than God. And so when the people of Israel now came to realize and repent and confess, they began to build this wall What made them rejoice is remembering where they had come from and then seeing the task at hand and the completion of that task. The fullest, most expressive joy always is in remembrance of grace. I mean, that really is true. We will not rejoice fully until we remember what we've been saved from. And if you don't really understand what you've been saved from, then then joy is not an expression you would experience as a result of that salvation. Joy is a response, and joy supersedes trials. It has peace, supernatural peace, even in the midst of trials. It has an essence of thanksgiving in the midst of trial. It supersedes feelings. Joy understands that God has done the work of past salvation, and we're responding to that time and time again by trusting in him and rejoicing regardless of even current circumstances. When the people gather at the wall, they remember the exile. They saw the broken walls. They remember the despair and they trust. Granted, it took Nehemiah urging them on, reminding them of all that God has done. And when they were having sort of droopy hands and despairing heart. Nehemiah had to say, don't give up, continue, press on, fight on until you finish the task. And when they finished, then joy, joy comes. After a cyclone Adai in Southern Africa, 
There are so many women and children and grandmothers who lost their homes. And we've mentioned this time and again, is that these are people who literally had nothing. So you cannot think about homes as your home being lost. It's a hut. And with that hut was what little scraps of food they had. And even with their crops, they were still only able to, most of these kids, to eat one meal a day. So when this cyclone comes along and destroys everything, they are left with nothing. It's truly desperate. I was sent a video by George Sneeman, and he sent it to me, and it's a picture of these grandmothers, and they're kneeling on the ground, crying out to God and asking for him to provide. It was so moving to see these grandmothers just crying out to him. And then he sent me another video later, and it was a, it was a video that was quite startling because it was a bunch of old grandmothers, those same grandmothers, in a hut, and they were singing so loud and dancing and praising. I mean, the two stood so much in contrast with one another and almost wouldn't make sense unless you understand what we're talking about here, that there could be joy even in the midst of sorrows. That the response that comes from understanding grace at the core level is rejoicing and singing. And I don't think that's an African thing. It's a Christian thing. In fact, the idea of singing is so much a response that Nehemiah makes sure that this is what is laid out for everyone to do. And we see this as the second way in which they dedicate this wall is through singing. Verses 27 through 29. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netaphathites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asphameth, for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And we also saw the choirs that Nehemiah had set up to be on different stations of the wall. Music and singing. What a gift of the Lord. Music and singing, regardless of whether you can hold a tune or whether you have a beautiful voice, it is the response of our hearts. Even though you might be completely tone deaf, but in the shower or someplace, you might be humming a tune. It might be completely off, but you're humming, you're singing, you're listening to music. Why is this, why is this something that is so universal amongst human beings? Because sometimes words fail us. But music and song are able to do what words cannot do. David was playing the harp or the lyre to King Saul, and it is said that when that happened, Saul's disturbed spirit was stilled and peaceful in those moments. It gave him momentary trouble, uh, relief from all of his heart's trouble. Worship pastor Bob Coughlin describes the purpose of singing unto the Lord this way when he says, singing is how the congregation particularly engaged, engages its emotions and affections with God's word. When we sing, it's hard to remain emotionally disengaged. Just as the sense of smell can evoke strong associations and memories, so the sound of music both evokes and provokes the heart's joys, griefs, longings, hopes, and sorrows. When we sing, it's hard to remain emotionally disengaged. One thing we know is the Bible takes the role of music and song very seriously. Psalm 33 says, sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. In Nehemiah, we see very specific people who are talented in music to play instruments in verses 31 through 42 of chapter 12. They're to lead God's people in singing. It wasn't to displace the word of God, but it was to complement it and to support it and to be able to soften God's 
people as they prepare to hear his word. It is hard for the worship leaders and those who lead in song, the band, to balance this tension, this this walk that we have to do all that we can to play as skillfully as possible, but to make sure that the end goal is not the playing of the music well, because it's not a concert. It's not something that you're supposed to sit back passively as the band plays and sings, and you just sit, sit there and think, well, that was either, that was really good. We want your feelings and emotions to be moved. But the point of the movement of those emotions is not for emotion's sake, but so that you will actually be more ready to hear the word of God preached and proclaimed and taught. And we believe that music and instruments plays a role in that process. It's not a, an addendum to the worship, but it has its place, a very important place. One thing to note also that the Bible makes so clear both in Nehemiah, but throughout the rest of the Psalms, is that there's a variety of instruments that are used. And each one of them has its place and its role. I do think it's sometimes sort of musical snobbery to think that, well, God uses only this instrument and not this instrument. There is a beautiful sound that comes out of the pipe organ. It is transcendent. There's also a beautiful sound that comes out of the drums. For some of you, the pipe organ is where that's truly God's instrument. The drums are the devil's instrument. <laughs> or maybe for some of you, oh, no, the piano and just singing a hymn, that's, that's old-fashioned. That's, that's for people, that's like grandfather music. But really, it's the electric guitar, that's really what matters. There is a, a, a pompousness when it comes to the idea of how God utilizes instruments and music. I hope as a church we grow in the appreciation of all styles. Yes, even country music. Even folk. Is it possible screamo has its place? Heavy metal. Some of you say, no way. Striper does not work well here. And I know some of you are like, what is striper? Ask somebody who knows. But God has a place, and it's to utilize music of all forms, of all types, of all instruments. And it is pride and arrogance to say that, no, that's not really God's music. The role of music and instruments is to lead us to his word. And for some people, it, it's different than others. And that's okay. What a blessing it is to see the diversity and the range of music. Secondly is that the goal when we sing, um, when we lead worship through song, is for you to sing. Singing is a right response to the word of God, regardless of how you sound. And it's a response to what he has done for you. I'm afraid that some of you think, well, I think I'm going to come 30 minutes after because that's when the real worship begins in our church which is that's when we have announcements and then preaching begins. But the first 30 minutes, that's sort of a warm-up to that. And so we make our way in the building at, we start at, I don't know if you noticed, but we have a, a little timer because we as a church want to honor your time and to say 10.30 a.m., we are going to always start on time. And the way that, my hope is that you also understand that as well, because not because punctuality is important in and of itself, but because the worship of song is important, the whole worship. And so therefore, punctuality has its place. And so I really want to urge you, if you're going to consider coming to worship, try to not come and aim for 1030. Because if you aim for 1030, you're going to come at 1045. And if you come at 1045, then you're thinking to yourself, well, I can sort of miss that part. That's sort of the prelude to the real stuff. What the Lord is showing us, what Nehemiah is saying is that God's worship begins with the singing of song together. You need it. And you need to do this. One of the things we try to do is utilize songs that has real words 
that speak about Christ and who he is and what he has done for us. There's a lot of songs out there that actually I used to sing as a college student, as a high school student, that I would never sing today in worship, simply because it does not point me to Christ or his word. But we try to do our best, and I'm not saying we're perfect in it, but we try to do our best to sing songs that point you to Jesus, that make you delight in who he is and adore what he has, what he is all about and what he's done. And you need that to prepare you for this time because there's so much going on every day of the week and there's so much going on as you walk in. And a lot of times we're burdened, we're distracted, we're, we've had a conflict with somebody, we were, we've had a really busy week at work and it's been so hard. And so you come in here overburdened and sometimes even when you hear a sermon preached, it's, it's good, but in order for you to hear it, you need to sing something that reminds you of God's grace, that prepares you for his word. And so every part of our worship service, and we're going to be a little bit more specific even as we're going into this new building, because it's going to require a few things, including two worship services. But we're going to be a lot more intentional about making sure that the worship service points us to Christ in the fullness of the gospel. And with that comes music as a part of it. And punctuality is a part of that. It's a, it's one way of saying just as much as if I have a meeting that I have to be at with my boss or with a client, I will not be late for that. How much more a meeting with my king, with the king of kings and lord of lords. And so if you're planning to say, I'm going to be at church on time, you must not aim for 1030 to be there. You will not make it. You must aim for 1015 or maybe even 10 a.m. And if you happen to be a little early, praise God, you can have all, all this conversation and and I guarantee you, some of you next week, you're going to be here at 10, 10, 15, but then what is it going to look like a month from today? I hope it's going to be, I'm, you're still doing it. Not because Sam told you to do it or the leadership wants you to do it, but because you actually see it. You see how the blessings of it comes as it comes along. And singing, you know, singing also is about your posture. It really is. It's hard to sing like this. God is so good. Yeah. God is so good. God is so, God is so good. God is so good. It's hard. It's hard to sing. I know this because when I was in college, I struggled so much with that. How I feel in my body impacts what my heart, what's going on in my heart. It does. That's, you know that with your own children. If you have children, their posture, if they're down like this, you know what they're feeling. If you're coming in, I'm not saying you need to be perfect or anything like that. But I want you to receive for what God wants to give to you. But so much of it is your own heart. And it's not you need to be strong. Come in like this. But say, say Lord, I need you. I'm tired this week. I'm angry. I'm depressed. I read this morning in Psalm 42, just as my devotional, why so downcast, O my soul? David says, put your hope in God. He's literally yelling at himself. Sometimes we need to yell at ourselves. And singing yells at ourselves. It says, help me to focus. Help me to trust in you. Giving is our third response, verses 44 to 47. Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered, and all Israel gave the daily portions. I mean, again, these are two verses that point towards this giving, but it's all throughout Nehemiah. It's a natural response of worship is the giving heart. In fact, worshipers... In 2 Corinthians 9, 6-7, Paul says this to the church, Worshippers never give under compulsion. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. This wall could not have been constructed without every member of the people of Israel gathering to give. 
And Nehemiah did not take his sword and put it next to everyone's throat and say, you better give, because if you don't, off with your head. It was their natural response to what God had done for them. They wanted to do it. They gave because they knew against all odds they were able to do this. In a matter of over 50, a little bit more than 50 days, they completed this task. It was impossible, but God was able to do the work and he was able to finish it through this meager, broken, complaining, struggling people. God did the work. That's so often how God does work as he uses broken people. He used the disciples, 12 of them, and they were not easy men. They were, again, not people you would have chosen, nor I, to be the founders of the church of God. God makes sure that nothing comes easy, because if it is easy, what happens? It's my strength, my intellect, the fact that we have a certain few number of very wealthy people who gave and... Voila, it's so easy to do. That's how we claim glory. And when God really loves you, he does not allow you to do that. Instead, he makes it difficult. Because in that difficulty, you have to trust him. And when you trust him, when you actually trust him with your resources, your time, your efforts, your energy, when there's sacrifice involved, all of these things, when that happens... When you start seeing how God still moves despite the hurdles and the obstacles and the trials, there's no other recourse but to say, it has to be God. Because there's no other explanation. One thing we know through this process, and if you, for some of you, you've been with us for a while, and some of you have been with us at least through this process with this building, can't tell you how many obstacles and ups and downs and points where we were saying, Oh, it's done. We're finished because we can't do it. And then suddenly we get a phone call. Actually, it's back on. No, it's done again. Back on again. Done again. It's happened so many times. And at the time, you know, if I've been saying this with some of the elders. If we had tried to do this, and we did try to do this about five to six, seven years ago. But if we, when we tried to do it then, we never had enough money, never had enough we just weren't ready. And we weren't ready because we weren't ready in our hearts as well as the people that God was bringing who actually have the abilities to do such things weren't here. Within the past five years, God has blessed us immensely with you, our church. People of all sorts of giftings coming together and saying, we can do this. And it takes that because what God wants most from us is that he receives glory. And he loves us so much that he will not let us go down the road and thinking, this is all about us and our strength and our power. We must never forget that God already has a building. He doesn't need ours. He doesn't need our pittance of a building. Really, truly. Listen to what God says in Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 through 2. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? He's talking about the grand temple of Jerusalem. What God is saying is, I own the heavens and the earth. Trust me, I don't need a building. God doesn't need me and you either. Jesus says... If you don't praise me, the rocks will cry out to me. Do you, do we really think that in order for God to be worshiped, we have to sing loud? Or else he's not going to be worshiped? If any worship leader or pastor ever says that, run away from that church. Run away from us. God does not need me and you to sing. Singing is a response for us, not for God. It's us saying, you are Lord. You are King. You have made me, you have saved me. And singing, I have to sing because that's for me. That's not for God. And a building is not for God either. He doesn't need this building. So let us not go down a dark 
valley to think that God needs this building. It's what led the people of Israel to be destroyed in the first place. He is the building. He is the wall. He is their home. He is their rock and their fortress. He is our protection. He is our strength. He is our building. The wall, the building, is a physical symbol of a spiritual reality. Just like we are his church and the building is a physical symbol of that reality. And we must never forget that. Never. Or else he will destroy that building and he'll care nothing about it. But also know that God does use physical structures as a means. Doesn't mean that um, we shouldn't do this. In the same way, God was delighted with the temple of Jerusalem when David had it first in his heart to say, Oh God, you've been living. We, we've had this tent that represented your dwelling place. And here I am in a palace. That's not right. I want to build a building for you that in some way, I know it falls far short of what represents what you should dwell in, but I'm going to build that building for you. I want to. And then God said, David, you're not the one to do it. You've shed too much blood. But if that's your heart, have your son do it. And Solomon builds that building. It was not the building, but it was their heart that said, I want this building. And it, I want it because you've done so much for me that it just represents my heart. And God says, if that's your heart, then go ahead and I will bless that place. That's what I want. And I know that's what you want. I don't want a building just because we need a building practically. I want it because it represents our heart, our heart for the gospel to be multi-generational and to advance beyond our borders. From the Bay Area, as we saw by God's grace in that video that we showed, to the end of the, to the ends of the earth, that it makes a difference, that God uses it for his purposes and his glory. I want to close with a few things. So, um, if you would be able to join us today, that would be great. And being able to physically build this building, we'll let you carve your initials somewhere. <laughs> um, actually, uh, I take that back. <laughs> I don't know if I have the right to say that, but, uh, Maybe you could hide it somewhere without any of us knowing. Um, it's in San Ramon. The location is just exactly where God, we feel like it's exactly where God would have us be. It's right off the freeway. It's right in between Walnut Creek and Pleasanton. So it really works for our community. It's surrounded by stores and restaurants and foot traffic and hopefully people who will use that and use that as a place not just where you eat and and fellowship and gather, but we invite others. We share the gospel. We're in our community. We're reaching our community. There is a, a, a few notes about this as we are working together to finish the task. Um, as we've been building this building, we've been so amazed and blessed by so many of you have given of your talents, your gifts, your resources. But as you, you will see today, there's still a lot to be done. And the reality is, is that it is costly to build this building in our area. Even from what we have shared with you, there have been a number of unexpected costs. Suddenly the city requires a retrofit. That's a six-figure retrofit. We were told that we, we need more power or we won't have enough air conditioning. So you will see, if we don't get this air conditioning done... In, uh, next July, you'll, you'll have to bring your personal fans, you know, the little squeegee ones, <laughs> which is fine. Um, we have to, we just found out we have to move these stairs because it's not to code. That's another six figure cost. Um, there are probably going to be other unexpected costs to come. There are a number of things we have to do from all the ADA requirements and fire and safety and um, this doesn't include trying to finish even a kitchen or getting rid of our, the nasty carpeting that's there or whatever, fully finishing the bathrooms or whatever it might be. For us, we say having a concrete box, at least it's our concrete box. But 
as you will see in our demo efforts, we've been trying to scrimp and save and doing all that we can. And huge props to a number of people who have been working so hard from Derek and Victor and Chad and Steve, who have really been working hard and so many others to help us along this path. But it probably will take more. And we've been doing all that we can. But I want to present this to you and to say, if this is our goal together, would you help us finish this task and reach this goal? So the elders and I are, we're asking you to consider partnering with us in that. We don't, ex we haven't mapped out what that means. It might be an one more pledge drive or another one or a fundraising drive or something like that to get this to a place where we say, let's get this done. Let's make this work. And it will take all of us. But I hope you see that most of all, if you feel obliged to give, do not give. We really believe in the idea of a cheerful giver. A biblical giver is a cheerful one, not one who does it out of obligation. So if it's, oh, there goes the church again asking for money, or, you know, you, you just do not even think about that. But what I ask is instead that you would consider giving to this end. We'll let you know what this looks like, but I, I wanted to say, give you all this to say God has graced us and blessed us with so much. And so from the bottom of our hearts, we give our thanks and praise to Christ Jesus, our Savior, and to you, the church, for even being and bringing us together in this place. And we look forward to what God is going to do. So we will get back to you on what this means practically, but I just want to say thank you and bless you. Let's pray together. Father, you have been so kind and merciful and good to us. One thing is for sure is that as we have heard through Isaiah 66, Nehemiah 11 through 12, you do not need a building. What you care about most is your people and their hearts. And from the hearts will come singing, will come giving, rejoicing, not if we think about a building, but if we think about you, Lord Jesus, and all that you've done. And as we come to this table, I pray that that's what would be at the forefront of every one of our hearts, that we would remember the cost of what you undertook so that we might have life with you forever. All that we have in this world, from buildings to our personal resources to our families, in the end, one day that will be no more. But what we will last forever will be you and us. And so we're excited for that end. And we thank you that Jesus makes that possible. We pray, Jesus, pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.